The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. It is Mother's Day, and I thought it would be timely to do a Mother's Day message. Don't always do that. If you go back and look at the history of sermons that we have preached on Mother's Day, they have varied. Sometimes we're in a book, we just keep going through the book, like when we were in the book of Acts. Um, and other times we've done Proverbs 31, 1 Peter chapter 3. Last year, as all good pastors would do because it was COVID, that on Mother's Day I preached on what the Bible says about Satan. I don't know if you remember that. Um, it was actually very popular. So, thought, well, let's get back to talking about what God has to say about mothers. And today it's wives in particular. So if you have a Bible, let's just look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to cover the first six verses. I'm going to read verse 7 because it goes with the first six verses. And really what I want to do is just zoom in on verse 4. Thought of the day. I preached on 1 Peter 3 before years ago, but today very different approach with emphasis on practical application. Zeroing in really on those of you who are currently married and making some assumptions here, talking specifically the way Peter does is those of you uh, wives who are believers and know Jesus Christ, and you are married, and whether your husband is a Christian or not, uh, the passage applies to both of those situations. Also, by way of reminder, say you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a woman, I'm not a wife, and I'm not married. How does this apply to me? Well, it does. Uh, maybe you're a young woman looking to be married, completely applicable, so you know what God thinks and expects about the role of a woman in marriage what pleases him, uh, or if you're a young man looking to get married, just a good reminder to be, what are you looking for in a godly woman and mate, and you pray to God accordingly, that he would send that kind of godly woman your way. Or if none of these apply to you in those categories, it's just if you're a Christian, this is a very important passage in reality about in completely informing your worldview, about some of the most basic and fundamental realities in human life, like what constitutes or defines a marriage. That's been turned on his head in our culture, hasn't it? In the last 15 years. What is a marriage? Pretty fundamental. What is a wife? What are her priorities? What is her role? What should she be doing? That's been turned on its head as well. Completely redefined. You're not going to find the answers to these from God's point of view in the world at all. Not, not a hint of God's truth on these issues, let alone the question of what is a woman. Ten years ago, we wouldn't even think we'd have to be clarifying and defining that. What is a woman? As we saw this week here in 2021, that uh, one of the countries is submitting, maybe the Aust Australia, is sending a, an athlete to the Olympics in Tokyo, some guy, they're sending a man uh, to the Olympics to compete as a woman. And they're just calling him a woman. So that's what we're up against today. So we're going back to basics, what God has said. He is the creator. He has given us the truth. It's crystal clear. So very important in all of us as Christians, we need to know what God has to say in all of these matters. And here's what he says about the relationship of marriage. 
starting at verse 1 in 1 Peter chapter 3. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, or to scripture, or the gospel, then they may be won over without a word, without a word, by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and fearful or respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, excessive braiding of the hair, wearing of gold jewelry, and putting on dresses, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I want to stop there because that's really what I'm focusing on today. That's why the title of the sermon is what it is. I put there the gentle woman. There are many truths we could zero in on and spend an entire hour, but this phrase it's critical to the passage, it's foundational, it's the heart of the meaning of this passage and what God is looking for. A godly woman gives priority to and emphasizes the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Precious. Verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or Master. And you became her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So like I said, well, we're going to zero in on the first six verses there. We're talking about women, wives in particular, a godly woman and what God expects in these six verses. Uh, God is not, or Peter, through the Holy Spirit of God, for both men and women, the wives and the husband. He is not emphasizing or even really talking about your rights as a spouse. It's rather our obligations. My obligations as a husband, your obligations as a wife from God's point of view. We need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this. This needs to be ingrained in our head for many reasons. So we will do that. But before I just, I did talk about uh, the godly man. So those of you either who were not here or forgot about it, I did it for two or three weeks. So I drilled home on the men and their responsibilities, and particularly husbands. It wasn't even, it was just before COVID, so that was rather recent. Um, so we dealt with that exhaustively. But just a couple of reminders in verse 7 for hubbies to help your wife along. You do have responsibilities, and from God's point of view, simply they are you husbands in the same way. In the same way, what? Well, be a submissive person in the same way. That's what it means, because that's God's standard for every Christian, and that carries over from chapter 2, where he's got these categories of people, and he's telling all categories of people to be submissive, be submissive, be submissive. Verse 13 of chapter 2, be submissive to, for the Lord's sake, for Christ, to every human institution. Be submissive. That's just a basic virtue or characteristic of a, an obedient Christian, is we are submissive people. We're supposed to be. And inherent in being submissive is being humble. That's how God has orchestrated or uh, created human society. It's uh, 
the hierarchy of authority and submission, and none of us can escape it. It's every, in every area of our life. And God expects the Christian to be submissive in every respective area and domain of where there is authority and where there is expected submission. So this command for wives to be submissive is not solely just for wives. Every other Christian is to be submissive in the appropriate areas. And that's why in verse 7 it says, You also, husbands, in the same way, be submissive where you need to be submissive, as chapter 2 said. And also in the same way refers back to the example of Christ in chapter 2, verse 21 to 25, just before chapter 3. He was the epitome, the incarnation of submission and humility. And he was God incarnate. Do you know God the Father is not submissive? Right now, he is not. But Jesus in his incarnation was submissive in every area of life. That was appropriate. He was submissive to the Father. He said that in the Gospels. I submitted the Father 100% of the time. He was submissive to the leading of the Holy Spirit 100% of the time and perfectly. He was submissive to the truth of the Word of God 100% of the time. He was submissive to the law and did everything that the Mosaic law required. He was submissive 100% of the time. He was submissive at times even to his enemies. For he submitted to the Father's will to endure suffering. And he even did the ultimate submission. And that was to death, a death that was not deserved, but it was the Father's will. So Jesus, that's what Peter's saying here. In the same way, just as Christ, the one you say you know, he's your Savior, you want to be like him. After all, he set an example in chapter 2, verse 21. It says, for you, Christian, be like Christ. What is Christ like? He was submissive. Submissive and humble, and that needs to be a characteristic of the Christian life who is obedient to the Father. So you husbands, in the same way, like Christ, having a submissive and humble attitude, live with your wives, present tense, as you are married to them and live day to day with them, 24-7, uh, interacting with them. Uh, your priority is to live with them in an understanding way. Live with them according to knowledge, present tense. That means you need to get to know your wife and keep learning your wife. And that never stops in this lifetime. And you will never perfect it or accomplish it in this lifetime. Even if you're married for 60 years, you will always be a student of your wife. That's what he's saying. Live with your wife in an understanding way. You really need to understand her. Well, what do you mean, Peter? Well, he helps us out and he says, well, two things. As with a weaker vessel, she's fragile. Doesn't mean she's inferior, but she's weaker in some ways. Not necessarily intellectually or spiritually. We know she's not inferior because you were both made in the image of God. But there are things in the constitution of a woman, by God's design, God has made her weaker in her constitution. Not less valuable, but she is a weaker vessel. Like the fine china versus the hard $3 corningware. <laughs> She's fine china. She's fragile. Treat her accordingly. She's the weaker vessel. She's fragile. Like the $2,000 vase you got overseas as a souvenir as opposed to the five dollar hammer you bought at the hardware store she's a weaker vessel and needs to be tenderly treated accordingly weaker vessel the i guess the vernacular would be because she's a weaker vessel she's not one of the boys she's not your buddy like the boys he even gets more specific he says she's weaker and treat her accordingly and live with her accordingly since she is a woman there it is why She's a woman. Why is she different? Why is she weak? Because she's a woman. She's not a man. She's not one of the boys. She's not your buddy. Like one of the guys is. How do guys interact and have fun? Particularly the teenagers. They wrestle and punch each other. No, that's, you don't do that with your wife. 
You, you yell at each other and you poke one another and you insult one another and you laugh at each other. No, you don't do that with your wife. She's not one of the boys. This, this is real practical advice. She is different. She's a perfect compliment, but she is totally, completely different. That's why it'll take you husbands a lifetime to keep studying her and learn her mysterious, ever-changing ways <laughs> that you need to attend to. I'm going on 32 years of marriage. You know, it's very, it's, and I counsel people in marriage a lot, and it's a lot easier to counsel people with their marriage problems when you have mastered marriage, like I have not, <laughs> like I have not. So this is a good reminder for husbands. So she is different, and on the other hand, there's the beautiful balance because he balances it out with this statement, but show her honor. Show her honor. Don't treat her like a lesser being. Don't look down your nose. You don't have a diagonal relationship with your wife. You have a parallel relationship with your wife. You have a diagonal relationship with your children. You look down your, at them in terms of your authority. You do have authority, but it changes. She's a peer. She's an equal. And that's what the second part of verse 7 is. Show her honor. So you honor her weakness. You don't despise it. You honor her weakness. You don't get frustrated by it. You honor her weakness. You protect it. And also, you don't exploit it. You enhance it. Show her honor as a fellow heir. So here's the equality. She's a fellow heir. She's a joint heir of the grace of life. She's a Christian. She's just as, just as much uh, an equal, spiritually speaking, as you are. You are not superior as a Christian or before God. That's clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. So just a good reminder for hubbies. Uh, you have a role to play here. And then when the husbands do their basic responsibilities and the Christian wife does her basic responsibilities, and then you just have this beautiful synergy. It's a supernatural synergy that only God can provide and only Christians have access to. And you have a harmonious, uh, deep, joyous marriage relationship that the world could never know or experience. But it is only possible by obedience to God, His Word, and following His plans. So uh, with that, let's just walk through the passage. I got some introductory things, though, I want to share, particularly with our wives. I had mentioned that a little bit about counseling. So I've been counseling married couples. I think that I can remember the first time I was, tried to counsel a married couple. Almost three decades ago, and have been doing it for decades. Now we do it here at the church, the elders, and we, we do a lot of different kinds of counseling. But I would say the most frequent kind of counseling that I end up doing, apparently, is uh, marriage counseling. So, in terms of the frequency, I'm giving most of my time to marriage counseling of people in our church. And I also think of it, not just the frequency of the counseling that I do, but the complexity and the intensity of the problems that I do with respect to counseling is also related to marriage problems. Uh, counseling regarding parenting, maybe that's a close second, but definitely marriage. That doesn't surprise me. That makes sense. Because after all, the marriage relationship is the basic, fundamental human relationship that God has established on earth since the beginning with the first two people, Adam and Eve, and he made them one. So if you're married, you are, you're not just a partner or a friend with your soulmate who is your spouse. God made you one. You are inextricably united in every conceivable manner from God's point of view. That's why it is so complex, and that's why the problems are so frequent, or they can be. That's by God's design, husband and wife.
Very different than your relationship with your, your children. Your priority relationship is with your spouse, not your children. Your relationship with your children, by God's design, is it's temporary. They're just passing through. Really. With your spouse, God's intent is it's permanent. So it's something you have to deal with, contend with, live with all your days by God's design. So that's why it's so complex. Not only that, uh, the Bible is clear. We know this of why marriage can be so complicated. And that's because of we go back to Genesis in the beginning. We know that marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a gift from God. As a matter of fact, at the sixth day of creation with Adam and Eve, who were real people, six real days, God has told us clearly in Genesis 1, that's how he created the world. Marriage began when he created Adam and Eve, the first two people made in his image. He brought them together. He made them one. God performed the first marriage, Adam and Eve. They came together and they were united. They were one flesh in every conceivable way. And God's diagnosis or pronouncement when he was done creating that marriage, he said in Genesis 1.31, it is very good. It is very good. It was perfect. They were without sin. And for that short time, Adam and Eve had a perfect wedding. We cannot even conceive of what that is, any of us here today who are married. We don't know what it means to have a perfect marriage. Someday we will. Because as the church will be married to the perfect husband, Christ himself. But in the meantime, we can experience what Adam and Eve experienced for that short period of time. But as a couple, they were given directives. And as a couple, they sinned. It wasn't individual sin. It was as a couple they sinned, and as a consequence, God punished them as a couple in several ways. And that's why marriage is difficult today, because these consequences that God put on Adam and Eve and their marriage were transcendent, universal, timeless, continuing all throughout human history. None of us can escape them. These consequences that God put on marriage because of their disobedience as a married couple. God said, don't do this, and they did it. Not only will you die as a result of that, but there are other consequences that are practical that will go with it. Uh, we don't have time to, to go through the specifics, but just by way of reminder, how did God punish Adam and Eve, the first married couple, back in the beginning of world history? And those consequences are still with us today. And they, if you are married, they are in your marriage from one degree to another. Well, God first punished Eve, the woman. He said, I created you. The first thing I said before sin was be fruitful, multiply, have babies. That was supposed to be a good thing and a painless thing. And before the fall, it was probably painless. But as a result of sin, God burst, uh, cursed Eve at her very nature of who she was. She was to bear children. And that would become excruciatingly painful as a result. That curse is with us today. And then the second way that God cursed Eve, the wife, he cursed. I mean, you could use the word curse, but he gave a consequence to her in terms of her role as a wife. Before sin, she got along with her husband perfectly, completely harmonious. But as a result of her disobedience, God cursed the marriage relationship. He really did. And here was the curse. He told Eve that your desire will be for your husband. And in Hebrew, it's very clear, you will lust for power over your husband. What was he cursing? The roles of husband and wife. He was to be the leader. She was to be the follower. She was to be the complement to him. And God cursed those roles, that they would be confused at the very core. And as a result, from that day forward, Eve, instead of following submissively, humbly, and in perfect harmony with her husband, she would try to wrongfully usurp his authority. That's what the word means. And that curse is still with us today. That is at the heart of marriage problems. Wives trying to illegitimately usurp the control and authority of their husbands. That's clear. And then the curse on 
Adam was God created him to be a provider. And he was a wonderful provider before the fall. After the provider, God made it difficult for him to, to provide him anyways in terms of his sheer attitude and his resistance to hard work. And then God compounded problems so that he might be a hard worker and provide. And he made the earth his enemy. He had to fight against very nature to make a living so that his most basic responsibility uh, was challenged and compromised. And those are with us today. And that's what makes marriage so difficult, let alone God cursed the entire earth and everything about it. This is a fallen, corrupt, cursed world, and we have to live in it and try to function, and it is very, very difficult. So anytime a Christians come along and say, my life is hard, my marriage is painful, I am distressed, and I say, amen, it's all in the Bible, God told us this, this is no surprise. This is why you need a Christian worldview. This shouldn't be unexpected, this shouldn't be news to you, Christian. We should know this. Now that's the bad news. There is good news because God has provided a remedy, particularly for his people in light of these curses. How can this be reversed? How can man and woman be put in a place where by nature they're not, the wife isn't trying to illegitimately usurp authority and that the husband isn't fighting back the wrong way because man's, uh, the male's inclination will be to react to his wife's wrong behavior and who, her pursuit of authority. And the man in his sin will respond one of two ways. When his wife is acting up, he will either retreat because he's a coward. Or he will try to rise to the occasion every step and he will try to literally overpower her. Either with his attitude, his behavior, his words, and even sometimes physically. We see it all the time. So at face value, without God's intervention, marriages are compromised and just filled with problems and challenges. But God wants to be gracious to his people and provide solutions, and he does. And so that's one of the solutions is very cleared out, uh, clearly laid out in 1 Peter chapter 3. But listen to this. Uh, the Apostle Paul commenting on the reality from a Christian point of view, God's point of view, about the nature of marriage. Now, the Bible does say that God, his ideal is that most people would be married. Marriage is still a gift, even though God cursed marriage and the roles. But it's still God's intent and design that people be married. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord for believers. So God still blesses marriage. But here's a realistic verse from Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, 28. Paul's trying to help these married couples out in his church. They're pagans. They don't have any biblical background. So they, they got a lot of problems on their hands about trying to figure out how to be good Christian husband and wife. But he does remind them the reality. Here it is. If you're married, this is for you. If you get married, you will have trouble in this life. That's just a reality. That's a promise. If you get married, you will have trouble in this life. That word for trouble, very interesting, translated different ways. If you, if you get married, you will have tribulation in this life. If you get married, you will have distress in this life. Distress. So maybe you've got a marriage and you're thinking, boy, this is distressful. Well, yeah, that's what the Bible says. And it's distressful and troubling for a lot of reasons. Number one, because you're a sinner and you brought all your sins into the marriage. It starts with you and me. Then you, you went, for whatever reason, you married another sinner. Now the sin problem has been compounded in your marriage. And then you're living in a cursed world. And it's made complex all the more. How distressing is that? And then you've got Satan who is real. 
He's an enemy of God's people. He's an enemy of Christian marriages. And 24-7, he is trying to intervene, trouble, and destroy Christian marriages. He never relents. That is a reality. Then you start having children who are intended by God to be a blessing. But raising children is distressing. It is difficult. It's a challenge in a good way and a bad way. One of the most distressing things about having children is when you have children, you are concerned about them. You're worried about their safety. And that never goes away from the time they're three years old, 13 to 23 to 33. And that weighs you down. It makes you worry, makes you fret, constantly worrying about your children. So that's added distress. If you didn't have those kids, you wouldn't have that stress. You have a child, you have added stress. You have four children, you've just quadrupled, quadrupled that distress. So that is a lot to bear on the emotions and the psychology of us as uh, weak, frail, finite human beings. But God hasn't abandoned us. We, we have answers in Scripture. They're actually very simple. They're hard to do, but they're very simple. Now, one last reality check for us. Because you might be thinking here, yeah, I've got, I'm struggling in my marriage. And we need to think about it in a proper way. So a good reminder from James, James chapter 4. If you are married, and if you ever quarrel and have arguments with your spouse, or if you have fights, regardless of the intensity of them, here's a good question. James asks a diagnostic question, uh, and he asks this question in James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source or, or, of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's a great question. James is asking that, moved by the Spirit of God. Because that's why married couples come to you for counseling. They are saying, pastor or counselor, we have problems. We are having conflict. Oh, wait, you're having conflict? I'm going to quote James. What, what is, why are you having conflict? That's what James literally says. And then the beauty is John, uh, James gives the answer, so I don't have to. I know your problem. Well, you haven't heard our story yet. Well, I know, I know the solution. I know why you have quarrels. No, you don't. You don't know my husband and what a loser he is. No, let me, let me I'll tell you from the Bible. This is God's answer. It's the best answer. It's the authoritative answer. It's the deep penetrating answer. It's the ultimate answer. What is the source of quarreling and fighting among you in your marriage? Well, James says, well, you have internal selfishness. That's, that's your problem. You are selfish. Wife, what? It's my husband. And you are selfish husband. What? No, it's my wife. No, that's not what James said. That's not what God said. Here's your problem. Here's why you fight and quarrel and have conflict. You are selfish inescapably as a sinner. We all are. You're selfish and you married a selfish person. He goes on. He doesn't stop. Here's your problem. You're selfish. You are self-centered and you have self-centered desires or lust. That's your problem. It's my problem. You lust and you do not have. As a spouse, you insist, I want it my way. I want it my way. That's the problem. He goes on. He doesn't stop. You envy and you don't get your way. You don't ask when you should. And when you do ask, you're wrong with evil. You ask with evil motives. You, you, you. You know, James is sticking his finger in our face here. You count the use 13 times in this passage. James says, you, you, you. It's not your partner's problem. It's you. Focus on your problem. So if we both focused on our problems, there would be harmony. The problem is when married couples, they, try to, they want to fix their spouse. Well, you can't. 
Only God can fix your spouse. And if you're two Christians and you want your spouse fixed, uh, your spouse, your, sorry, your spouse fixed, you can't fix your spouse. God can, but God can use you spouse to fix your spouse. But God will only fix your spouse by using you to fix your spouse if you do what God says in the Bible. And that's the hard part. But that's what we have in 1 Peter 3. Clear example of our obligation. Now, when I look at, um, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I would imagine that if I asked uh, most of our members here, if not all of them, do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Most of you would say yes. And what that means is that the Bible has the answers for every issue in life and every problem I have in life. We, we believe in that. We're committed to that. And yet I mentioned the frequency and the intensity and complexity of marriage problems. Is the Bible really sufficient to answer all marriage problems? I think it is. I think the Bible says it is. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who don't think so. They will say in their mind, yeah, but practically by their actions, no. Tell by their behavior. So if we looked at everything the Bible had to say about marriage, here's a surprising thing. It actually says very little. You search the New Testament, the 27 books. Okay, what are the main responsibilities of marriage and how do you solve marriage problems? Very little information. So that's a startling truth. The New Testament has very little to say about how marriage is to function. On the other hand, the New Testament is very specific about the roles of husband and wife. There is no ambiguity. It is clear. God didn't need to say a lot. And the roles of husband and wife, as defined by God in the Bible, they're actually very simple. You don't have to do 17 things, and you forget. Wait, what were they? No, actually, there's about just two. Makes it easy. God knows what he's doing. So the roles are few, they're simple, and also the roles are easy to understand. We don't neglect doing our basic roles as husband and wife because we don't understand them as Christians. We do understand. There's a different problem of why we don't do them. The New Testament gives sufficient advice on how to have a proper marriage and and all the information we need is there. The power, the ability, and the resources to fulfill those roles as husband and wife is available for the believer. God has made it, he's given us all the resources. Consider your six main resources that is sufficient for you as a Christian that God has given to you as a believer. That unbelievers do not have, they don't have these resources. What are the six main resources showing the sufficiency of God in our life to have a healthy marriage. Well, number one, salvation, which made you a new creation. Old things passed away, all things have become, by virtue of the fact that you have been saved, equips you with the ability to have a pleasing marriage before God. Number two, the fact that you've been saved. Number two, you have the indwelling spirit. So the same spirit of God who created the world out of nothing, the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, The same Spirit of God that brings a dead person to life lives in you as the Christian. That resident Holy Spirit, He's your advocate, He is your help. You need a lawyer with your spouse? The Holy Spirit is literally called a lawyer. He lives in you. He is your advocate. We have supernatural power available to us to help us in our marriage. And especially when you have two Christians, the Holy Spirit wants to work together. That is His goal in unity. So you have salvation, you have indwelling spirit, you have the living Word of God, you have Scripture. The Bible, the Word of God, it is living and active and powerful. What does it do? It has the ability to pierce through 
to the very soul and spirit of a human being, to pierce the very conscience, to know the motives of a human being. No secular counselor can do that. A secular counselor can't get inside your head and discern your motives and pierce very soul and spirit of your uttermost inner being. The Word of God can do that. And it does. And you know when it does. Because you read a truth, you hear a truth, uh, a truth is preached or spoken, and you feel convicted, you feel guilty, you feel pierced. You say, ouch, that is the Spirit of God working with the Word of God deep in your soul, my soul, reminding us, showing us, exposing something that needs to change. That's the power of the Word of God. So we have the resources of salvation being made a new creation, the indwelling Spirit of God, the power of the living Word of God, and also the power of prayer. We can't go on about Everything the Word of God has to say about prayer. But I will say this. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Praying to God in the name of Jesus in keeping with the will of God as a believer brings dead people to life. Let alone can modify some of the disturbing, irritating idiosyncrasies of the spouse that you chose. Prayer changes things. Boy, those are powerful resources. Salvation, the indwelling spirit, the living word of God, prayer. Number five, accountability from other believers. This is called the church, the local church. First Timothy 3 says that the church of the living God is the pillar of truth. The body of Christ. When we hurt, we all hurt. So accountability from other Christians to help you in your walk and particularly in your marriage and your roles. We all need that. Accountability directly. From the saints, all those one another's, iron sharpening iron. We need people in our face. We need people in our private lives, praying for us, crying with us, motivating us, rebuking us, carrying us on their shoulders. Those are the one another's. Supernatural resource. So we have salvation, the indwelling spirit, the living word of God, prayer, accountability from believers in the church. And then number six, in your arsenal that God has given you as a spouse, as a Christian spouse, is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And you're going to need it for every breath of your life on this earth, especially in marriage. Colossians 3. It's the marriage passage. Forgive your spouse. Present tense. Keep on forgiving your spouse. Well, what if they sin against me seven times? Then forgive them 70 times seven times, just like Jesus said. But you don't know my spouse. Keep forgiving. And forgiving. And forgiving. Jesus said it very clearly. Matthew 6. If you don't forgive, I will not forgive you. I will say that again. Matthew 6. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, I will not forgive you. It's a frightening verse. Because if you have an unforgiving heart, that's evidence of a hardened heart. A callous heart. That's not a Christian heart. So that's a good reminder. Evaluate. Why don't I forgive? Why am I so cold? Why am I not like Jesus? So there's six resources from God's point of view, that if you're a Christian, you can make your marriage work. So we have the resources. As a result, Scripture is sufficient. That's the point. So don't go outside looking for other resources that so many people do. By going to the world, secular professionals, uh, seeking worldly techniques as though the Bible and all of its solutions aren't enough. Going to Oprah because she's so wise. No, don't go to Oprah. Resorting to medication because of your marriage problems. Alcohol, yoga. Meditating on a mantra, biofeedback, these are real. These are things Christians have done or do. Horos uh, consulting the horoscope, acupuncture, not going to solve your marriage. Here's, here's number one. Sometimes it, even Christian wives can be guilty of, I think, in my experience, 
talking with people and counseling and just being observing. Probably the number one uh, deception, weakness, challenge, mistake, faux pas, whatever, that Christian wives can make that leads them to a point of being frustrated in their own marriage with their imperfect husband who they think is supposed to be perfect. And that is by comparing their husband with other people, other husbands, other families. That's the number one problem. Which means they don't have a, a realistic view. They don't have a view, a proper view of reality. They have wrong expectations. So you need to change your expectations. Not lower your expectations. Probably, according to the Bible, raise your expectations. But you need to change your expectations. You have the wrong expectations. Scripture says, Paul said, do not compare yourselves with yourselves. Don't do that. God is the standard. His word is the standard. Everything else is a false comparison. Don't compare yourself with so-called other people in the distance who have the greener grass across the street and you think, oh, they're the perfect Christian family, the perfect Christian couple. I saw it in a book. I saw it on a television. I heard it on the radio. That's a lie. It's not true. And as time goes by and as you get to know people, you realize, wow, your family's just as messed up as ours. I remember when... uh, my pastor, 30, 25 years ago, Pastor John MacArthur was preaching on this issue, and he was talking about messed up families and dysfunctional families when that word was the craze, and he said his family is dysfunctional. And he said everybody's family is dysfunctional. I agree. That's what the Bible says. Because we are dysfunctional, sinful, fallen, wicked, evil, self-seeking people. We just can't keep that in the forefront of our mind, and we should. So don't go around making false comparisons. Example. Uh, the, one of the number one shows on television 15, 20 years ago. 19 and Counting, which was following a, the perfect Christian family who could make no mistakes. And it went on for years. And a lot of Christians watched it and said, wow, they're ideal, they're awesome, they're the perfect Christian family. If we could only be like them. Well, there's two problems with that. As the years go by, you realize they're not the perfect family because bad stuff's coming out in the news and it's in the public domain and it's pretty embarrassing. And the second thing is, come on, people, that's called television. It's called entertainment. I mean, think about it. What's going on? That's not real scenario. There's the family. They're sitting at the breakfast table eating Cheerios. And what you can't see are the seven cameramen in the room. They are not going to say anything that is of compromise or sinful. They're not going to act the real way. It's theater. And people get duped by that. So I can't emphasize that enough, is having these false standards that confuse us and actually deceive us. My husband was only like that, that pastor. My wife was only like this, that wife. Well, no, that's not reality. So let me ask you wives that are married today a question. Um, and here, it's a simple question. It'll take us now to 1 Peter 3, 4. Give you a minute to think about it. Answer just in your own heart and your own mind. What is the greatest desire you have on planet Earth today as a Christian woman? What is your greatest desire? What is your greatest longing? What is your greatest ambition? And I'm asking Christian wives. Be interesting to see what thoughts come to your head. If you're honest with yourself. Well, here's what Scripture says the answer should be. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. If you're a Christian wife... And you know what? This has nothing to do with the condition of your husband. He can be an unsaved husband. He can be a Christian husband who's kind of flaky. He could be a great and awesome Christian husband. doesn't matter. If you're a Christian woman, this should be your answer, according to Scripture. Your greatest desire here on planet Earth should be 2 Corinthians 5.9. Paul says, we have as our ambition, our greatest desire, our greatest goal, whether at home here on planet Earth or absent with God in heaven, is to be pleasing to God, the Westminster Confession, 
lays that out for us and reminds us. Your greatest desire as a Christian wife should be pleasing to God in all that you do. It's really that simple. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether then you eat or drink or you're married to a man, do it all to the glory of God. That should be your greatest desire and ambition. To please God in all things, which also means pleasing God in your marriage because 1 Peter 3.4, in Peter's exhortation to Christian wives, particularly Christian wives living with a compromised husband, a disobedient husband, not the godliest of all husbands, the goal doesn't change. He tells these Christian wives, live in such a way that you honor God and let it be the hidden person of the heart, your inner disposition, which has the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That is your goal. I want to live as a woman of God who is characterized by a gentle and quiet spirit. Why? Because this is precious in the sight of God. This is pleasing to God. This pleases God. So as a Christian woman, if you were answering the question, what is your greatest desire? I want to please God. What pleases God? It's explicit right here. One of the things that you can do to please God as a priority in your life is to live with your husband with a gentle and quiet spirit. And by the way, that's the goal of every Christian woman, whether she's married or not, to have a gentle and quiet spirit. As a matter of fact, it's kind of the goal of every Christian, depending upon what context you're in. And we need God's help to do it. So let's do a quick evaluation for wives. Are you ready? Answer these. i got ten questions for you. They're mostly yes and no. Just answer in your own heart. Why? Because Scripture tells us to examine yourself. It says that several, of time, several times. And a lot of times we don't do that. We forget to examine ourselves. We don't want to examine ourselves. We're afraid to examine ourselves. We're afraid of the truth if we examine ourselves. We don't like other people examining us. And yet scripture says, examine yourself, evaluate yourself, be honest. Yes, it can be hurtful. Yes, it can be painful. Yes, it can be discouraging. People by nature don't want to evaluate themselves or at least do it honestly. That all the time in the world. No, Jesus said, you being evil, even though they were believers, you being evil. He'd say the same thing to us if he was sitting with us. McManus, you being evil. Wow, that hurt Jesus. Yeah, I'm just telling you the truth. So evaluate yourself. Here we go. And this is in light of 1 Peter 3, verse 4. To be a godly woman and how you should conduct yourself. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Lord, I want to please you. Well, here's one of the things you can do to please him. Focus on your gentle and quiet spirit, even in the midst of daily challenges. Number one, wives, is your greatest desire to be what this verse commands, that is, having a gentle and quiet spirit on the inside? Yes or no? Number two, Christian wives, currently, what are you doing that is precious to God or pleasing to God on a regular basis? It's a good question. What can you confidently say that you are doing that actually pleases God as a woman of God? Number three, Christian wives, do you have this verse memorized? You should, hiding it in your heart because it's such a priority. Number four, do you have this verse written down somewhere so you can see it daily? Deuteronomy 6 says to do that. Write scripture down so we're reminded of it visually. Number five, 
When was the last time you thought deeply about this verse and meditated on it as a woman of God? I, I have routinely for 32 years meditated frequently on verse 7 about the responsibilities of a husband. Why? Because I'm special? No, because before I got married and right after I got married, I had men of God telling me, this is your priority. And also, I keep thinking about it and meditating on it and thinking it over and running scenarios over, over and over and over again after 32 years because I haven't perfected it yet. It's like the, a riddle. Wow. God, this is your desire and I haven't mastered it yet. Same thing for you, wives. If you're a woman, it should be on the back of your hand. It's what pleases God. Number six, have you ever asked another believer to hold you accountable regarding this verse? Someone you can trust, someone that knows you well. We need that. Iron sharpens iron. Number seven, are you unfamiliar with this verse? If you're a married Christian woman, and I'm bringing this verse to you today, and you haven't heard this in a while, you're not, un, you're not familiar with it? Well, you need to be familiar with it. Number eight, have you been ignoring this verse? Number nine, how often do you pray to the Father, Dear God, cultivate in me a quiet and gentle spirit, especially regarding my imperfect, fallen, sinful husband. By your grace, Lord, please, because I know it pleases you, and I want to please you. we got to pray about it. We need God's help. Can't do it on our own. Number 10, how often do you pray, Dear God, expose the hindrances or the shortcomings in my own life and in my attitude that short-circuit the goal of having a quiet and gentle spirit. God, I need your help. So I'm talking about very specific prayer. God attends to those kinds of prayer. You're, that, you're praying in the will of God, and God promises He's going to answer that prayer. He will look favorably upon you to answer that prayer. Okay, another thought for wives. Again, just practical application, doing some evaluation, laying your heart before God as a Christian wife. Good stuff to think about. If I were to ask you, and sometimes I ask Christian wives, this one, maybe they come in for, actually, I always ask at some point. Okay, it's a married couple, they're having problems. Okay, when I'm done counseling you, can I come over to your house and get some counseling? But anyway, <laughs> married couples, and I ask them usually the same question, um, and I'll ask the husband this, this similar question, but to the wife I would say, uh, what is the greatest de desire that you have regarding your husband? And what I mean by that is fill in the blank. I want my husband to, and then if you could only choose one thing, I want my husband to do what? What would you want your husband to do? Now, husbands, if you haven't asked your wife that in a long time, you need to. Because you're supposed to help your wife, love your wife, serve your wife, help her please God. You need to know what she's thinking, what her desires are. But this is the question for the wife. What is your greatest desire regarding what you expect from your husband? I want my husband to fill in the blank. Here's typical answers. You ready? I want my husband to love me. But I'm talking about the greatest priority here. You only get one answer. I want my husband to listen to me. Some women say, I want my husband to protect me. I want, some women say, I want my husband to provide for me and to be a hard worker. Some women think, I want my husband to serve me. Some women, women might say, or don't admit it, I want my husband to agree with me. No, that's what girlfriends are for. <laughs> I want my husband to make me feel safe. Notice the word feel. 
I want my husband to pamper me. I want my husband to spend time with me. I want my husband to have children with me. I want my husband to enhance my career and my strengths. I want my husband to satisfy me. Okay, there's 12 typical answers. None of those are the right answer for a Christian wife in a Christian marriage. And the only correct answer is that the wife, a Christian wife should say, I want my husband to be someone who loves Jesus. That is the only correct answer. It's not, I want a perfect husband, I want this kind of... No, I want a husband who truly knows Jesus Christ as Savior and loves him. That comes first. That is the foundation for everything else. All these other things can be true if he's got that priority right. And if you've got the priorities right... Because if that is not your goal for your husband, then marry a Mormon. Marry a good agnostic. I, know, I have an agnostic slash atheist friend, been married for over 35 years, great husband. Truly best friends with his wife. I don't know if they've ever argued. True story. He doesn't know Jesus, he doesn't love Jesus, neither does she. That's a superficial, empty marriage from God's point of view. It's not going to last. There's no real meaning to it. So the proper two answers is I want a man who loves Jesus. So thank God today, wife, if you've got a husband who's a Christian. You're a Christian and he's a Christian. Praise God. That's a gift. Many wives, Christian wives, don't have husbands who are Christians. That's why Peter wrote... What he did, he said to the, these Christian wives, they, were, they had a pagan marriage, they were married, they were both pagans, and then they heard the gospel, and the wife got saved and the husband didn't, and now she finds herself in the middle of a mixed marriage. And she's actually being abused, mocked, used, persecuted by her pagan Roman husband. And Peter's trying to encourage her and give her a strategy of how she can find joy and fulfillment even in her mixed marriage. Marriage with a husband who's not a believer. But boy, if you've got a Christian husband, that's a gift. That is a gift. So I just want you to renew your commitment as a Christian wife in your heart. I want a man who knows and loves Jesus. And then part two, this is the hard part, or it can be. I also want a man or a husband who will help me grow as a Christian. Ouch. There's only one way we grow many times as sinners, and that's we need a mirror in our face to show us all of our weaknesses. And nobody will do that better than your spouse that you live with, telling you all your weaknesses. They got a memory. They, got a, they can predict what you're going to do. We, we all know it. But that's by God's design, the perfect complement. Someone in our life that knows the most personal, intimate things about us, particularly our sins where we need to grow as a Christian. That's why God's brought us together. That's why a marriage is still a very good thing, a gift from God, so that you can grow together in the grace of God, helping one another. My husband has weaknesses. Yeah, that's, that's kind of by design. I mean, he's a sinner and so are you, and you're supposed to help each other because you both have weaknesses. You're in this thing together. So there it is. Lord, I want a husband who knows Jesus. And Lord, I want a, a man of God who's going to actually help me grow as a Christian. And I know, Lord, that means that at times he's going to point his finger in my face and say, you, 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 13 times, just like the book of James did. 
And you, can do, you do the same thing to him. You're pointing out each other's weaknesses, and hopefully with humility you accept it. You welcome those weaknesses, and you ask God to help you grow and change. So with that, let's just close with a cursory overview. I just want to give you an outline of First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 to help you out. Now here's your strategy as a godly woman living with a sinful husband, whether he's a believer or not. That's what Peter is emphasizing. You can be a godly woman, a pleasing woman, a self-controlled, spirit-filled woman, even if you have a disobedient husband. Verses 1 and 2, that's called the obligation. Verses 3 and 4 is the motivation. And then verses 5 and 6 is the illustration. Just to help you in your own Bible study, breaking it down for you. The obligation of what you're supposed to do as a wife, verses 1 and 2. The motivation to do it is verse 3 and 4. And then the illustration of how to do it is verse 5 and 6. So just the first part there, the obligation uh, from God's point of view. And that is that God demands it. God requires, what is it? Submission. So in the same way, wives, like everybody has to submit in all other areas of life, you wives also have an area where you need to submit, and that is with respect to your husband. So in the same way, you wives, be submissive. Present tense, continue, make it a pattern of your life to be submissive to your husband. Submissive, compound word used 38 times in the New Testament. It's not only reserved for women, it's for all Christians. We saw in chapter 2, it's in Romans 13, where every Christian is supposed to submit to government. And it's just depending upon the context. In your domain, in your sphere, the way you relate to your husband and wife is with submission. And it's a military term. You get, under, you get in line. And ideally, he's a godly man and he treats you the right way. You have this mutual respect for one another. And just things that, that synchronicity is a beautiful thing. And you just have this harmony that only God can give when you're both doing your proper role. You are submitting. He is leading lovingly. It's a beautiful thing. That's the picture. And even if he's disobedient, you still need to be submissive. So in the same way, you wives, keep on submitting, literally, to your own husband. You don't have to submit to every other man. It's your husband. He's yours. He belongs to you. He's your property, and you're his property. So that, for the purpose of, that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, capital W, even if your husband's disobedient to Scripture, whether he's not a Christian and rejected the Gospel, or if he's just obedient, disobedient to the Bible... You don't pound him over the head with the Bible, scream and yell at him. That's not your strategy. You submit to him. That's what you do. In order that they may be, your disobedient husband may be won over without a word from you. No nagging. That's what it's saying. Do not nag your husband. When do you want to nag your husband? When he's disobedient to the word. When he's a knucklehead. And he will be. Win him over without a word by the behavior of their wives. And trust that God will win him over with the word of God and the spirit of God and your godly behavior. Verse 2. As, they, as the disobedient husband observes your chaste, pure behavior as a human being, uh, he, he notices, you know what, there's something different about my wife. I, I act like a jerk and she's just compliant and has a sweet spirit. She has a higher authority she's looking to. And she's looking beyond the circumstances to her God. And that's the end of verse 2. It's, uh, you, they observe your chaste or holy or godly behavior and your fearful behavior, your reverence towards God. That's what it means. Respectful behavior. That's not respecting the husband. That is fear towards God. 
And that is apparent. He is your, God is your greatest priority. You want to love your husband? Then love Christ above all. Then your husband will take note. It'll make a difference. God can use that. So that's the obligation. Submit. Be submissive. Be, keep submitting. Well, I can't. Well, then ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart so you can keep submitting. And you don't submit to his sinful demands. You, sub, you submit where it's appropriate, where God has given him legitimate authority. You can also confront him as a sinner whenever he sins. That's the one and others. That's your responsibility. But where you're supposed to submit, you submit. Then after the obligation is the motivation. Why should I submit? Well, it's because what, it's what God wants. It's what he, pleases him. He desires this. This is an act of worship. When a godly wife submits to her husband, is compliant, lives out her faith, has a greater love for Christ than anything else, and lives accordingly and lives with reverence, that pleases God. That's a sweet aroma to God. That God is going to be welcoming to you with crowns when you enter heaven. And as he pronounces upon you, you pleased me by your gentle and quiet spirit, even in light of the difficult circumstances in your marriage. That pleases God. Do you want to please God? So this is the motivation. Your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of hair, and that's whooping it up. That's the way they dressed. Wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. That's all external, external beauty. It means nothing. It's superficial. It is not Christian. It's not saying you can't wear nice clothes. That's not the point. It's don't be excessive like the pagans, who they only focus on the outward part. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But rather focus on the inner person of the heart, your attitude, your temperament, your spirit, your character, your inner resolve as you seek to walk with the Spirit of God every single day, walking by faith, walking in the Spirit, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, sovereignly, submitting to God in all things. That's what it means. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A gentle spirit, primarily used of Jesus. Jesus was gentle. Or another translation is meek. Not weak. It doesn't mean weakness. It's actually strength under control. It's actually the fruit of the spirit of self-control on the inside. That is power. That is strength, but it's under control. Meekness, gentleness, not reactionary. Gentleness is the, uh, or, uh, the hidden person of the heart on the inside with the imperishable quality of gentleness and a quiet spirit. So gentleness is the inner disposition, and then the quiet spirit is how that manifests itself. So you're gentle on the inside. You're trusting Lord's sovereignty in all things. You're trying to walk in the spirit, and the way that's manifest is with the quiet spirit. You're not reactionary. You're not raising your voice. You're not going tit for tat. You're not getting angry. You're not throwing things. You're not bossy. You're not controlling things. You're not getting outraged. You're not losing your temper. You're not showing you don't have a fuse. You have a quiet spirit. It really, the, the Greek word literally is calm, tranquil, or still. You are undisturbed of soul. You know, only the Spirit of God can do that for you, for any of us. So that's the obligation, and then the motivation is to please God, and then finally an illustration. Well, I can't do this, God. I can't do it. My circumstances are too difficult. You don't know my husband. And God says, no, you can. It's been done all throughout history. 
for the women of God and the saints that came before you, they modeled this. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Read it. Be reminded of it. You will see it there. And there were some pretty compromised, lousy husbands in the Old Testament that the women of God lived with and complied with this. And they actually lived it out. And it's illustrated. For example, uh, Abraham, who was married to Sarah, get this for 100 years. Can you be, imagine being married to your sinful husband for 100 years? Well, Sarah was. And there were a lot of bad times in that 100-plus year marriage. Now, the Bible does say that he was a man of faith. He knew God. That's true. He was a believer, so praise God for that. He didn't have the Spirit of God living in him to help him, so it's a little different, but he was a, he was a believer. He did some great things. He's the model of faith in the New Testament for us. But boy, he did some horrible, sinful, wicked things as a husband. He committed adultery against his wife with Hagar. He may have done it more than that as far as we know. He was an idol worshiper. He, and on and on. There's just this litany and list of sins. But that is not how God, in hindsight, remembers Abraham after 175 years of all of his horrible, wicked sins. The only thing God sees on Abraham's tombstone is man of faith. Now, Christian wife, remember that about your husband. If he knows Jesus on his tombstone... God will remember only one thing, man of faith. And he will be added to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Because every person in there was a pathetic, compromised, no good, dirty, rotten sinner. Saved by grace. So that is his illustration. And the evidence that Sarah exemplified, look at verse 6. It says, not only did Sarah submit to, she obeyed Abraham. Obeyed? Yes, same word for Children, obey your parents. doesn't mean you obey the same way. You obey as a peer, but there's a hierarchy of authority. It's the same way that a, uh, someone in the army would obey his general. He's, just, he's following orders. He's in the appropriate lane. He understands the hierarchy of authority. That's all that means. And Sarah obeyed her husband as the head of the home, as God has designed. And she showed that respect towards her husband by calling him Lord or Master. And you can read that in Genesis 18. When did Sarah call her Husband Abraham, the knucklehead, Lord and Master. Well, she did. Genesis 18. And it was a sign of respect. And she, and she actually is thinking this in her own mind. She didn't say that to anybody. It was in her own heart. So she's meditating on what she really believes. And in her mind, talking to herself and to God, she recognizes her husband as Lord. Doesn't mean he's divine. It's just that he's the head of our home. He is my leader. He is my provider. He is my protector. He is my soulmate. He's the one that God has given me. I respect him. I need to honor him accordingly. That's how Sarah thought of her sinful husband, Abraham. That pleases God. And if Sarah can do it with Abraham, so also can you, Christian wife, with the help of the Spirit of God and using those six resources that he has entrusted to our care. That's a lot to think about. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help in this area. Father, we thank you for our time together. and Here on Mother's Day to to really go deep and serious into what you've laid out in your word. Marriage is a precious gift from you and we as sinners, we've messed it all up, Lord. We need your help. James is right. We are by nature self-centered. But God, thank you for the resources you give us and you can actually make us new beings, new creations in Christ. The old things pass away and these these horrible, sinful habits don't need to continue. We can establish new holy habits 
with your grace, with your help, the Spirit of God, with other believers surrounding us, helping us, encouraging us, and we can have victory. And we can even see the manifestations of that victory little by little so that you might encourage our hearts. And, and, and thank you most of all, Lord, that that pleases you. The thought that we as finite sinful people can do anything that pleases you, a perfect and holy God. But you said it does. So, Lord, we need your help. If there's anybody listening that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally as the Lord, as the Savior, God, I pray that you would work on their heart with your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin, working on their conscience to know that they are lost and doomed without your grace, without your forgiveness, without your death on their behalf, that you might soften their heart, woo them to yourself, Remove the blindness from their own sin and from Satan himself. That they might cry out to you, embrace you as Savior and Lord. And that they also may become new creatures and join the family of God. We pray all this to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.